Today's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give, him, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, the, our, of our God will stand forever. All right, good morning, church. Am I on? Okay. Uh, let me start today by uh, welcoming a guest that we have. We have Hang Yeol Chang. If you could just raise your hand, we'd love to greet you with a round of applause. Yes, Hang Yeol. Thank you. I don't know if we have any other newcomers, but if you are a newcomer to us, please, uh, there are connect cards in the back. We'd love to get to know you, to meet you, uh, and to connect you. So, um. All right, are you guys surprised to see me up here? Or uh, pleasantly surprised, I hope? Uh, maybe confused, I don't know. Um, but man, let me start with this. In preparing for this sermon and also just giving the 9 o'clock sermon, man, I have a newfound appreciation for our pastors it is not easy to preach, and so whether our pastors do a good job or not, I have made it a point to encourage them and thank them, um, because it is a lot. It's hard. Uh, or maybe it's just because it's my first time I've had to prepare three times as much. I don't know. Um, but what an important ministry uh, it is, the preaching ministry. It is how God has ordained um, the word of God to be preached to us. It is essential for salvation. It's the way that we are sanctified, and so I've always known that, but I never knew how much it took to preach, so um, thank our pastors, and, and yes, we can't wait for Pastor Paul to come back. I'm sure he's enjoyed it, um, the break. Okay, let me start today. I'd love to share a little bit about myself and my journey with the Lord. It'll be a way to introduce myself to you all a little more and a means to introduce today's uh, topic. So if you guys don't know, I am a preacher's kid. Before I was even born, my dad was ordained as a pastor, so I spent every Sunday at church. Um, and so I grew up in the church, but looking back, if I were to classify all my years, my childhood, uh, all the way up to my high school days, I would say that I was more of an observer than a participant. You know, I was not yet alive in Christ. The Word of God had not yet taken a hold of me. In fact, I would say that I, w I didn't even bother to ask some of the deeper questions in life. I never asked, like, what's the purpose of church? Why does my dad do this as a vocation? You know, who am I? And maybe the big one is, what's life about? Right. But as I entered college, there was a sense of urgency to, I guess, grow up and to figure things out. And, and like many people who enter college with all this newfound freedom, I started developing, unknown to me, a hunger to answer these questions. And what I can say is through my college fellowship, I went to Virginia Tech with my wife. And at CCF, I met the Lord in, in a really powerful way. And what I can say is that I think God and them, 
in that year revealed himself to be the answer to kind of the questions I had in my heart. And I didn't know exactly how or why, um, but I was on fire for the Lord. Um, It's kind of like the honeymoon phase, right? And when you're on fire for the Lord, you just serve, right? So I just threw myself into serving. Uh, I like cut off connections with all my non-believing friends, probably shouldn't have done that, and I immersed myself into CCF. I, sophomore year, I became a Bible study leader. I jumped into praise band. I uh, became an officer soon after, and I was zealous for the Lord, but sophomore year, I fell into what I would describe as a spiritual rut or a spiritual depression even, and I was struggling a lot. And I think, looking back, it's just I was young, and I did not comprehend the gospel in a deep way. I did not know the depth of my sin. I did not understand the height of grace. And naturally, I was probably standing on my own works and just who I was. And so then I felt inadequate. I felt like a failure a lot. I was still struggling with sin. And there I was. And there, especially my sophomore year when I was struggling, um, I came across the teachings of John Piper. If you guys don't know already, John Piper is a faith hero of mine, and a particular book that he wrote called Desiring God, he's famous for coining this through that book, but he says, this is the quote, he says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, and that quote really changed my life, no joke, Um, because you see, most of my church experience as a PK, as an observer, taught me that duty, not necessarily delight or satisfaction was the way to honor God. And I believe that God had wanted appeasement or, or good works or good behavior. Especially as a PK, I, I thought good behavior was what he wanted, not necessarily worship, right? And so here I was being told that satisfaction, happiness, joy, and purpose, all the things my heart at that time, at that season was longing for, could be not only found through God, not only was it permissible, but it was essential in honoring, glorifying God. And that really changed my life. And that's kind of the premise of what I wanted to share. It is the gospel, but... Um, kind of in that way. So I have drawn out uh, three points today. Um, it goes like this. It'll serve as our roadmap for today. Number one, we were made in the image of God to reflect him and find satisfaction in him. Number two, we, were, we exchanged the glory of God for counterfeit glories. And lastly, in Jesus Christ, we find our hope of glory. So number one, we were made in the image of God to reflect him and find satisfaction in him. So we'll start in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, he, God, reveals to us what is to me an astounding truth. He says that we are made in his image. We are made in God's image. And I'd argue that there are a few questions in life more significant than understanding what it means to be an image bearer of God. It's at the heart of what it means to be human. And really, right away, being an image bearer, it's, it's almost like a title. Being an image bearer, we derive a certain purpose. It's to image reflect. It's to represent. It is to model, right, God, the original image. To take it a step further, as image bearers, we're ultimately called to proclaim, to attest to, and to glorify God. And so while it's true that we're all unique and individually made, we all have different personality types, we have different experiences, and the world, I would say, loves to explore these things. We love to celebrate our differences, and those things aren't bad. But The first steps in understanding our purpose as created people is first to acknowledge this universal truth, which is that we are all created to bear the image of God with no exceptions. Believer and unbeliever alike, no created being is exempt from this. 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, It's a document that summarizes the principal doctrines of our faith through a question and answer format and something I had to study during my deacon and uh, elder training. But the very first question, it says this. It says, what is the chief end of man? And I like that question. I love that question because it gets right to the bottom line up front. Like, what is life about? What is the chief end goal of man? And the answer is, it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So here the implication is that we were created to proclaim, to attest to, and to glorify God. But in walking in this created purpose, we also enjoy God. We're meant to enjoy God. The implication being that we find our joy and fulfillment in God. Excuse me. Um, This is a John Piper quote. Each one of you, it says this, each one of you was created to be a conscious mirror of God's image. You were created to consciously reflect his glory like a mirror of God's image. And before sin entered the world, I think Adam and Eve had an overwhelming longing to be used by God to image forth his power and wisdom and love in the world. They wanted to be mirrors of his glory. And that longing is deep within every person today, but it has been distorted by sin. In a sense, the distortion is only slight, but it is the difference between day and night. So what John Piper is saying here is that as sin entered through Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve was created in the glory of God, to to bask in the glory of God. That's what Eden was, right? But they had it good, but they decided to rebel. And Adam and Eve, in a sense, they decided they wanted to be the light instead of be faithful image bearers to reflect the light. And here we have a distortion of order as creator and created, right? And what this, the consequence of this, we all know, is it separates us from God, but it separates us from glory. Um... And ever since that point, humanity has always longed for restoration towards glory, to behold glory once again. And that's the cry of our hearts, right? I, uh, I don't know if you guys were here two weeks ago when Pastor Sam gave um, his sermon. He used a chart, right? It, was like, like a, it looked like a basket or like a, um, sh- the shoulder shrug emoji, right? And uh, if you guys remember, it said glory, and there was the fall or humiliation in Christ. And our current state is suffering. And then we had uh, Christ and resurrection, exaltation and glory. But the beginning state and the end state is glory. And so we being here now, our hearts cry out for glory, to, to behold glory once again, right? That's the point. And glory is a big term, and I don't pretend to know exactly all the ways that Scripture references glory, but for the sake of this sermon, let me offer two definitions. Hopefully that, that is helpful. Number one, glory is the summation and designation of God himself. Second Peter, God is referred to as the majestic glory, right? So that is actually ascribed to God himself. And so the implication here is if we as people long for glory, essentially we are longing for God. That's the implication here. And number two, glory is the display of God's absolute and ultimate attributes. And if we ask ourselves what are God's attributes, he is love, he is holy, he is perfect, He is righteous. He is gracious. These are the attributes of God. And if we think for a minute, what are the deepest longings of the human heart? It's represented in the attributes of God. We all, as people, we long to love and to be loved. To, you know, like when we struggle with our sin, when we struggle with physical ailments, mental ailments, when we struggle in life, we long to be perfected, right? So we long for perfection. When we see brokenness in the world and we long for righteousness, we that's what we're longing for. And it's represented in the, in the attributes of God. And so if glory is the display of God's attributes, and in God's attributes we find the deepest longings of man, 
then our deepest longing, obviously, is God himself. Um, one of my favorite movies, it's called Remember the Titans. And uh, I don't know if you guys know the movie. It's a movie in the early 2000s. And actually, the movie is about my high school, T.C. Williams in Alexandria. That's where I went to high school. And this movie was created my senior year in, in high school. And so actually, I was, uh, one of my substitute teachers was Herman Brune, who's the main character in this, in this movie. And so maybe I have an affinity for this movie, but also I love it because it's a sports movie and I'm a sports fan, but it's one of, my, one of my wife and I's favorite movies. It's a story, for those of you guys who don't know, it's a story about a high school football team in the 70s who's integrating both black and white students. And racial segregation had been abolished, but most of the schools are still segregated, right? So they're one of the first schools to, to uh, integrate. And so this team has a unique challenge of integrating together while attempting to win a state championship. And they're led by the leadership of Herman Boone, who is a black African-American head coach. He is hard-nosed. He's very disciplined. Uh, he demands perfection, essentially. Um, and he, doesn't, he looks beyond skin color. And no matter who you are, he wants perfection from you, the best from you. And so throughout the season, he gets the best out of his players. And all the players, they unite under the common goal of striving for greatness. And they go undefeated, right? So they're perfect. They go to the finals, just blowing everyone out. And in the finals, they go, they meet uh, Marshall, Marshall High School, right? Right by Tyson's Corner. And in real life, I heard they blew him out. But for drama in the movie, Marshall's tough. And they're beating the Titans, right? And on top of that, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but the school, school uh, district, they didn't want the Titans to win because they didn't want a team with black represented players to win the finals. And so the refs are bad call after bad call against the Titans. And so they're dejected. They're skunked, right? And so at halftime, Herman Boone, who normally is just tough nose, he just has compassion on his players, seeing their spirits are down. He decides to have mercy, and he says, guys, you guys are doing the best that you can. I mean, anyone can see that. And so win or lose, that's all I can ask of you, right? And it's in this moment that the team captain, Julius, he speaks up, right? He says, no, it ain't, coach. And I'm going to get into character because this part's important. <laughs> Julius goes, no, it ain't, coach. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. None of us are. But we have won every single game till now, and this team is perfect. We stepped out on the field tonight that way, and if it's the same to you, Coach Boone, we'd like to keep it that way. And that becomes the rallying cry. All the players rally around that, and second half, they win. That's the end of the story, right? And there was something, I love this movie, but there was something about that scene the first time I watched it. It just resonated with me as a sports fan. You know, I don't know if you guys are sports fans, but have you ever asked yourself, why do you get so into, so fanatical about sports? Why do you feel like you're sharing in the glory of the team? And it's, I've always asked myself that. Sometimes it feels ridiculous, right? Um, and, but this, in this scene, Julius makes a couple admissions that I think are worth noting. Number one, Julius says, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes on the field. I make mistakes in life. And as a young, at a young age, all of our kids, we know this. We know that we fall short of a certain standard that God has described in our hearts. So we know we're not perfect. But for football, in the game of football, the team is perfect, right? So they can call themselves perfect. And so if they go on to win this state championship, not only do they reach the pinnacle of their sport, but they are perfect. And Julius is saying that is worth fighting for. That is worth bleeding for and sweating for, and all his teammates are saying, I agree, right? I agree. And that becomes the rallying cry. And for me, I think 
this reveals to us, I think when we observe human behavior, human striving, human life, there's so many clues as to why our hearts are always longing for more and longing for glory. Like when we travel and we behold beautiful creation, right? In some ways, we're longing for the majesty of God's glory, and we're just seeing a glimpse of that. And it, it, it takes us, right? Uh, it takes our hearts back. Or when we see something beautiful, perhaps we are seeing a glimpse of the beauty that God is. When we seek peace and security, whether it's through family or through finances, we are longing for the restoration of peace from a, from a righteous king and a good ruler. When we seek social justice, both good and bad, ultimately, we're longing for the restoration of perfect justice. And so, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that ever since the fall, we have always been longing for glory. But what's the problem? The problem is we are fallen and we love idols. So that kind of brings me to the second point, which is that we have exchanged the glory of God for counterfeit glories. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And this is true for believer and non-believer alike, I believe. Even as redeemed people, we still wrestle with our sin nature, right? And oftentimes we exchange the glory of God we exchange the message of the gospel for counterfeit glories and counterfeit pursuits. And this, at the end, robs God of glory, but also robs us of joy and contentment and satisfaction. So what is a counterfeit? Counterfeit, simply put, is an imitation, right? It's an imitation like a counterfeit, counterfeit Jordans or counterfeit Rolex. These are imitations. It seeks to mimic the, the true, but it doesn't have the same value. What's more is that Satan is the master counterfeiter. And it, this is very important. It's important to note that Satan cannot create. He can only imitate, or perhaps a better word would be distort. He can only distort. So God creates as the creator God, and Satan distorts. Satan takes good things like love, and he creates perverse love. He takes good things like sex and creates perverse sex. He takes good things like family or working hard or desiring peace and justice, and he distorts it, and he convinces us to make it an ultimate Anything to distract us from God. I don't know if you guys have read Screw Tape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis, but that's what it is. It's like the, the perspective of little demons. How can we trick them? How can we distract them from God? And I think some of that is true. Some of that perspective is true. Like if we think about distortions, thinking back to the original quote that I shared from John Piper, he says, Adam and Eve's desire to be the light instead of reflect the light, it's a slight, he, he categorizes it as a slight distortion, which is interesting. But he says the difference is still day and night. And so there's a spectrum of distortion. Some of it we can see with our own eyes. Some of it is very um, tricky to see. And so for the purposes of this, like a gross distortion, for example, a gross distortion would be something that we can look at and say, that is a counterfeit. That is not a glory, right? Would be, and, and Pastor Paul has said this before, but rejecting common grace or the plainly revealed things in life. For example, the biology of a man and a woman, or the murder of a child in a mother's womb. These ought to be clear things, but it's a gross distortion, and in some ways it's even creeping into our church, but when we see the word of God, we realize these are counterfeits, these are distorted glories in so many ways. But there are also slight distortions, right? And I, I asked myself, what's like a slight distortion? What's an example of a slight distortion I can use? And I came up with this. For example, me being a family man, I have three kids, a wife, uh, I love my family, and I have a conviction to honor God through my family. But 
Wanting to be a godly husband, but ultimately idolizing my family and kids. So wanting to make much of God through family, but instead making much of my family. That's an example, right? And I don't want to get into specifics, but I share this a lot in my JG that it creeps in, and it's very subtle. The point here is this, that there are many counterfeit glories, and our hearts are prone to wonder. Um, perhaps, chief, perhaps chief among counterfeit glories, or maybe not chief, but like the root of all counterfeit glories is self-glory, our desire to make much of ourselves. And so if we look at our text today, Romans 1, right, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. It was the prevailing temptation of Adam and Eve. And in a sense, rather than being faithful image bearers of our, of our God, Adam and Eve per, was persuaded by Satan to reflect their own image. And hence, self-glory or our desire to make much of ourselves is kind of the root idol of our day. And if we think about the context of our current culture and the society that we live in, don't we celebrate what is in traditional, um, classical I guess, uh, even in our faith, what is meant to be an evil, ourselves, or our pride. We celebrate the self, right? And um, so I'll, I'll actually, even, even as of last night, I was going to share a little excerpt from this book, which talks about that. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Pastor Paul gave me this book or recommended it to me, and I've been reading it. And it's, that's what it's about. It's, it's about how modern-day society formulates identity through the self, and therefore, purpose, meaning, and worth is all found from within. And it's a critique about our society and how that's very problematic, especially as Christians. And so, you know, I was going to share, but um, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip that. But what, I'll say one thing about um, how we as Christians engage in cult, cultural issues, how we ought to engage culture in general. I think some, this is something I've struggled with a lot, and especially in the last two or three years with the explosion of a lot of cultural issues, I've always asked myself, as I've been challenged through the preaching at this church, I've always asked myself, how do I engage, right? Do I even want to engage? In many ways, I don't want to engage. Like many of you, I wake up most mornings, and I just want to go to work and do a good job. <laughs> I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. You know, I want to be a faithful church member, and if I have any, less, any time left over, I want to get better at volleyball, and that's my week. That's my week, and it's hard because especially cultural issues from a Christian and biblical perspective, there's not always a black and white answer, not always. And so I rejected it, but I guess the impetus is, two impetuses is, number one, when I became an elder, I was like, oh, maybe I should engage in these things, <laughs> you know? Um, I can't keep it so simple, so there was that. But I think maybe more personal to me is, you know, I have a teenager. My oldest is 13 now, Jordan. And you realize at a young age, they're not only exposed to everything, but, you know, they're smart. Like, they're not as innocent. And so just, just my heart to talk with him and, and walk with him through all the different issues that he'll face. And I'm asking myself, how do I uh, make the gospel attractive in the midst of these culture issues? So I've had to engage. And I came up with this example or this kind of analogy that was helpful for me at least. And it's that, you know, in the Bible, we're called ambassadors for Christ, right? And if you think of what is an ambassador, like an example would be like a U.S. ambassador in a different country, in the embassy in a different country. We'll use Japan for the example, right? Two different cultures. That ambassador is a citizen of the U.S. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ, and, and we're image bearers, reflectors of Christ, right? That is what we learned. 
And so as an ambassador in Japan, if he's ignorant about that country, he can't be effective. So he has to know the customs, the people of that country, understand the pros and cons to be an effective ambassador. And in the, in the same way, if we really take this calling to be ambassadors of Christ seriously, not only do we need to know God's word, but there is a certain level of understanding our current home, right? The Bible says we are sojourners. And so if we're passing through, we got to know where we live. And, and I think that's relevant. I can, I can only ignore that so much, like I said. So as, as Jordan gets older, there has been this, um, I guess, desire for me to try to weigh in. It's not always easy, but that's why church is important and, and journey group and CG is important. Um, so that's a little plug there for that. Um, but coming back, and let me wrap up the second point about counterfeit idols. The final point is this. As created beings, we're never meant to carry the burden of emanating glory, like within ourselves, right? That's very different from reflecting it. And what I would say is, in reflecting God, we find our true calling, and we find satisfaction in being who we were created to be. But in pursuing self-glory or self-agendas, standing on self-merit, we are left exhausted and empty. That has been the case for me, and that will be the case for you as created people. And at worst, sowing into this life long term is a path and a life of destruction. The gospel is supposed to be, we call it gospel flourishing, I think. I didn't learn about this term until I came to a Reformed church, but, you know, the gospel leads to flourishing. That's, and sin leads to destruction. And when we think about flourishing, it is true starting with us, Right? And so while we don't preach prosperity gospel, we know that it is when we sow into the gospel, we believe it, we proclaim it, and we, we emanate or, or we, we sow into that, it is for our good. But that has implications for our marriage, for our kids, and for generations, it says. There's a blessing to be had when we sow into the gospel. It is, and when we do that as a society, there's a blessing, um, even in society, it's flourishing. But sin leads to destruction, right? And that... It takes wisdom of the Bible to know that. And, you know, sowing into counterfeit idols, that's what it is. And more often than not, more than that is, it's just in my experience, it leads to just weariness, right? And so, so what is our, what is our hope? What is our solution? And the Sunday school answer to that is Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer. It is true. In Jesus and through Jesus, we see the glory of God again. And we seek to reflect God once more. We no longer want to be, be the light, but we want to reflect the light again. The Bible says that Jesus is the fullness of God's glory. James chapter 2, Jesus is referred to as the Lord of glory. So he is the culmination of the glory of God because he is God himself. But also Jesus is the hope of glory, meaning we cling to Christ and his work till we are eventually returned to full glory. So even though we struggle and persevere in this life, we do it with hope in Jesus who promises us ultimate glory in heaven with our God. In Christ himself, we see the glory of God revealed to fallen and sinful man. Christ embodies the attributes of our glorious God, does he not? He lives a perfect and sinless life. He displays unconditional love on the cross. He offers mercy by giving his life, but also fulfills the demands of God, of God's holiness and righteousness, but becoming our sacrificial lamb. So we trust in him by grace through faith so that our relationship with God is restored and so that we can return to glory. So that's, that's basic. That, those are the basic points of what I wanted to share today, but I want to spend some time offering some application and uh, exhortation and encouragement. You know, it's been a challenge to come up with succinct, coherent points about Scripture, but 
application I feel like I can do, even as an elder. Why? Because, you know, it's just me simply encouraging my church and exhorting my church. And I came up with three, okay? And these are not earth-shattering, but hopefully um, they're encouraging. Number one is, first, we have to receive the gospel. No, duh. We have to receive and acknowledge the truth. So as image bearers who long for a glorious God, in Christ and Christ alone do we trust in and glory in. So we have to receive Christ. And for some of us, I don't know if this is true for some of us, we've heard the gospel many times. Maybe we know the basics of it. But for the questions and fears in our hearts, maybe we still wonder whether Jesus is really the answer or whether he is truly good, whether he can truly satisfy, whether he is trustworthy enough, and whether he is worthy of our whole lives. Because make no mistake, Jesus does demand our whole lives. And for those of us who are still struggling with these questions, just maybe a question I will pose, I'll humbly ask is, apart from Christ, like however old you are, apart from Christ, have we found peace and joy and satisfaction, all the things that our hearts are desperately longing for, have we found it apart from Christ? If I were to give you a million lifetimes, many lifetimes, and we were able to search the corners of the earth, do you think we could find it? It's kind of a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm essentially pitting what this world has to offer with the claims of Christ, who he says he is as Savior and as someone who restores us back to glory. Jesus says in John chapter 4 that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Um, there's this hymn that I love. It's called uh, The Love of God. This is one of Pastor Sam's favorite uh, hymns I know. Because he always, when I was a worship leader, he always used to ask me to sing it, and I don't think we ever did. <laughs> so Sorry. But it goes like this. Uh, it says, to, to write the love of God. Actually, it says, if we were all, every single person on earth, by trade, we were scrolls, no other jobs, scrolls, and we were tasked to write the love of God for us on a scroll, it would drain the oceans dry. That's what it says. And it says, nor could the scroll contain and hold if it were stretched from sky to sky. And that's just a fraction. That, that's an earthly illustration. But essentially what it's saying is that is the extent of God's love for us, his amazing love for us. It is deep, it is wide, it is long, and it is high. And I love that because, you know, we can be, we can be questioning and we can be asking, you know, is Christ the answer? But that love um, is unconditional nonetheless. And that's what we have been called as ambassadors to um, to relay. For those of us who have been living in this truth, acknowledging this truth, the consequence ought to be, right? This is what it ought to be. I'm not saying this is always the case for me, but then the gospel or Jesus becomes our greatest treasure. Like that has to be the natural consequence. Why? Because it is the secret to what we've been all longing for. Like if we found the answer to the deepest question in our life, it becomes so valuable, right? It becomes, and that's why Jesus is referred to as our treasure. And yet, we know, and we sung about this this morning, but our hearts are prone to wonder. And often, we find our hearts, you know, um, seeking fulfillment and satisfaction in counterfeit idols. And one of the things that I always ask myself is, like, as a, as a litmus test is, how joyful am I? How content am I in life? And I'm not saying that, you know, if we follow Christ, that every, joy, every moment of every life is joyful or this and that. But when I sow into the gospel, when I sow into keeping my mind on the gospel and in Christ, you know there has to be a fruit of joy. 
fruit of the Holy Spirit. There has to be contentment. When I'm struggling with joy and contentment, I'm complaining a lot, it's probably because I'm sowing into false glories, false hopes, which I do all the time. And so ask yourselves, is that the case for you today? You know, do we complain a lot or are we overwhelmingly thankful in, in the abundance, abundance that we have? And it's not to say life is easy. We all know that. And yet, God does promise us joy, right, in all circumstances. And so if, if that's the case, we can proclaim as the psalmist proclaims in 119, God, with my whole heart, I seek you and let me not wander from you. Second point I have is, I didn't know how to write this, but I just wrote it like this. It says, declare your personal, personal convictions to glory in the Lord. Declare or to proclaim your personal conviction to glory in the Lord. You know, we're always, we're called to proclaim. That is actually, you know, what we're commanded to do. But we, sometimes we think of proclamation as like evangelism, witness, but actually it always starts with our own hearts. And I think the best example of this can be seen in the book of Psalms with, with King David, right? The, so much of the Psalms is just David proclaiming who God is to himself. Whether he believes it or not in that moment, it's just him saying, God, you are good. God, you are faithful. You will not depart from me. And the thing about David, the reason why he's labeled as a man after God's own heart is not that he was faultless. In fact, the Bible is very explicit about his faults. And some of it, you go, oh my goodness, even I wouldn't do that, right? And, but what it is is I think David knew the folly of his own heart. But what he always do, does is he clings to the promises of God. He never, he always comes back to God. And I think there's something to be said for that. But that only comes, that only happens when we're constantly declaring and proclaiming who God is. And, and we're living for, with a conviction to glory in the Lord, knowing that it is for God's glory, but also for our good. And so David is a great example of this. And I think, you know, if, if I even think back to myself and my, I, I shared a little story about, you know, my college years when, when God uh, met me. One thing I did, I don't know why I did this, is I would, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but probably that was like when my prayer life was most robust, right? And when I was on my freshman, sophomore year, I would just pray a lot. And I would make these wild, outlandish prayers. And I don't think it was because I thought I was like, I could live up to it. But I would say, God, I just, I want to be sold out for you. I want to be completely set apart. I don't want to be just a Sunday Christian. I want you to use me and use me for your glory. I would say these things over and over in my prayer life. And I find I'm almost scared to pray those things now. But... I look back and so many moments in my life, so many moments in all the, the hardest moments in my life, God has used that to remind me that it's, he's worth it. Like, those were the declarations I made. And it's been a blessing to me, uh, to truth be told. And so, I don't know. I don't know if that's a regular practice for you or if you've ever made that proclamation, but it's worth it. It's worth it to say, God, I want to be sold out for you and I want to live for you. And there are many implications. Let me just speak to, like, in a practical sense, like, if we're family men, if uh, mothers and fathers, if we're parents, to proclaim this both in our deeds, in our words, to exemplify this in our lives, to say like Joshua did, as for me and my household, we would choose to serve the Lord, they are, there are implications, and it will carry you through life, right? And our kids will see that. If we hope to be great parents to so our kids, I, I really think it starts with glorying in the Lord and being sold out for his glory, knowing that it is for our good, for our family's good. And I think that's what, in some ways, like spiritual leadership is. Like men, we're called to be spiritual leaders. 
And we don't know the answers to everything, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, man, my, my wife knows the Bible better than me. But what we can do is we can, like Joshua did, step out in faith and say, no, for me and my household, we will choose to serve the Lord, right? We will reject the idols, and we will choose to serve the Lord. For newlyweds, right, speak to the newlyweds, but, like, uh, I think of my wedding vows. My favorite part of going to a wedding is uh, seeing the wedding vows. And Paul and Sally just got married, but, you know, those are beautiful words to be to, in sickness or in health, in richer or for poor, right? It's saying in all circumstances we will uh, choose to love each other. And the thing is, we know, we ought to know, that on our own merit, that cannot happen. Like, we can't will it. Like, people who have been married for a while, they'll tell you, marriage is not easy, right? We cannot will it. We can only do it if both couples say, we will choose to keep Christ first, and we will glory in him, and we'll see what happens. But we're going to, you know, we're going to live with that conviction. And so, again, if you're newlyweds, remind yourselves of that. Proclaim that to each other so that when life gets harder and gets busier and you have crazy little ones coming, like, that is the focus, right? And even singles, right, like, going back to my example, I think in some ways, I don't know if I'm off base saying this, but if we're single in some ways, we have less competing idols. I don't know if that's true or not, but if you are single, it's most likely you're younger, and so we haven't had time to revel in all the things that the world has to offer. If you can commit yourself to the Lord in those years, there will be fruit. There will, God will be faithful, and I believe that. And then lastly, as a church, we ought to always be saying this over and over. That's, that's the role of the church. Like, we want to be effective missionaries, right? We want to be a difference in our communities, but it starts with personal proclamation, and as families do it consistently, right, we see it. Like, I see it in other families. Oh, man, they are sold out for God. And even in their tough moments, I see them at church, and that's an encouragement to me. <clears throat> and there are so many implications that come out of that. And as a church, when we do that, I think, you know, we, that, that gets pushed out. And so the last point here is, last application is tether yourselves to church. We all know, we should know that we can't walk alone, right? Church reminds us to walk faithfully with perseverance, this race marked out for us. And my sincere hope is that, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of you, became, has, have become friends with many of you, and my sincere hope is that we walk together in life, together, and in the moments of struggle and burden that we help carry each other's burdens, but ultimately we remind each other of the gospel, of this truth, the glory in the Lord, because he is the hope for our glory, and it is for our deep joy and satisfaction. And so not to lose sight of that. It's not always easy to life do, uh, do life together, especially because we're, we're all sinners, uh, even as Christians, and some might even say especially Christians, but we do it because we know it is for our good. We walk together and we, uh, we walk together because it is for our good. And I love, I said tether yourself, and I use tether purposefully because I love that word versus, I don't know, join together. And the image of tethering for me is like yoking yourself to someone, like tying yourself to someone, right? And if, and I use this example at 9 o'clock, but if I am walking with Sam, right? Sam is my brother in Christ, so I hold hands with him, right? And we're just walking, right? If, I, if Sam says something funny or he smells funny, I decide to let go. Like, it's easy as that. But when I'm tethered to him, it's kind of like we're tethered by blood to family. We're tethered to each other by our covenant promises. And I'm tethered to Sam. So when he is no longer pleasant, there's still a commitment to him. And I love that because what I have found, at least just in all the different years of serving this, that, and that, it has been an accountability and a rem reminder for me that I am tethered to this church. And aside from this church, I may be saying all these things and it sounds great, but aside from this church, 
I'm like you all. Like I said, I'm just trying to live life, trying to do the best I can, and I will more than likely, my heart would wander to the many endeavors in life, which would lead to dead ends. And so I know this, and I know this, and if we know this, we tether ourselves to our church. We have grace upon others who are different from us because we are all united in this common truth that we are image bearers of Christ, right? And so... I did not come up with, like, a good ending. Even 9 o'clock, I just ended it abruptly, and Sam was like, okay, you should, come, you should sum everything up, and I, I'm failing to do this. So I'm going to end it there, and we are going to pray. <laughs> All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, each unique and different, but we are all universally united under this truth that we are image bearers of a holy God and you have called forth for us to reflect that image and we thank you for that God and while our hearts are prone to wander and settle for counterfeit idols remind us the truth that nothing nothing in this world can satisfy like you and so as a church and as people in our own families may we proclaim this truth that it may be the gospel that goes forth and changes lives and Lord for your glory and for our good so we thank you in Jesus Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.